Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. So this is an important part of our worship service as well, where the Lord is lifted up by our attitudes as we approach His Word. And uh, today, we're actually going to do that in a series of messages on the topic of grace, becoming a people of grace. We'll explain the design and purpose of this series as we go along, probably. But grace is one of the operative words of Christianity. Some might argue that it's the most important word of Christianity at the very heart of what we believe. It certainly is at the heart of what we want to become as a church and as a people of God. So we're going to begin a series called Becoming a People of Grace. And uh, these messages are going to be topical messages, so we're not going through one book of the Bible, but we'll be looking at different places in the Bible. Today we'll be looking at several verses. We're going to end up in John chapter 1 eventually, so if you want to mark that at some point along the way, that would be safe to do. But we'll look at some other verses before we get to that. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Dear Lord and God, we thank you so much that through Jesus Christ we have come to know you and that we can exalt you in our hearts and in our midst, as the one who is alive, who loves us, who cares for us, who is worthy of all worship. And Father, I pray that you might find in our hearts a sincere desire to hear your word, to use this unique opportunity where your voice might be made heard and where your voice will instruct us in the things that we will need to become better equipped to live this life and to serve others. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. This vacation was probably a little different because uh, one of the things I did for the first week was um, pretty much uh, do some pastoral type of uh, uh, shepherding, I guess we would call it. Uh, when my aunt died, my mother's sister died, she'd, been, she'd had cancer and had been uh, doing rather poorly, although she was expected to live through the summer. And uh, she was always one of the uh, things we looked forward to uh, doing when we got to Virginia, was visiting with Aunt Pearl and, uh, and uh, ministering to her and her illness even at this time. But the, uh, we got there on Tuesday evening, uh, and then Wednesday morning she was in the emergency room because she had fallen and so forth. So my first visit with, with her was in the emergency room, and it went downhill quickly from there. She was dead uh, about two days later. And I was at her side most of the time, uh, even in her last minutes. But it was a good opportunity to minister to people. And in the funeral, speaking in part of the funeral, um, to witness for Jesus Christ. To many of my own relatives who, uh, for whom I pray quite often but have very little contact. So it was a very good opportunity in that respect. One of the things that I did in the funeral was share some personal remarks about Aunt Pearl and the things that I knew about her. But I wanted to get some feedback from others who were closer to her who lived there in Withville, Virginia, with her. And so I asked uh, at the showing, at the viewing of the night before the funeral, I, I went around asking people, what are some words that you would use to describe Pearl? And, uh, you know, we got a lot of different words. There was loving and caring. Uh, but one word that was used quite often was gracious. She was a gracious person, meaning that she was a giving person. And usually that meant that referred to something like uh, giving food because she had very little to give. But when you came to her house, you never went hungry. You never went away from her house hungry. And uh, it's kind of a joke in our family. Whenever we visited with her or stayed with her, 
um, she would just constantly load us with food and send us on the way with food. It just kind of got to be laughable almost, but she was a very giving and gracious person. We are attracted to gracious people. We go towards gracious people because even if we don't have our definitions right, we know what a gracious person is. Somebody who's kind, loving, caring, accepting, and giving. You probably can think of some gracious people in your life, people that you look forward to seeing and being with. You might think of even mythical characters who are gracious, like Santa Claus, always giving, right? But luckily, there are some real-life people who are just precious, gracious people. I remember I had a professor uh, that universally, uh, at, at the seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, who universally is described by students as being gracious. And I was fortunate to have him as my chief advisor in the doctoral program. He was a gracious man. Uh, even when he disagreed with your views, he was very gracious in how he did that. He was gracious in how he treated people in class. He was forgiving in assignments and errors or when you discussed something with him in person. He went to bat for me in a tough situation. He's just a gracious man. On the other hand, we also know what ungraciousness is, don't we? Somebody who's kind, cruel, or stingy, like the Scrooge in the Christmas story. I unfortunately had a professor like that, too, and you've probably had him as well. Unforgiving, unbending, inflexible, critical, arguing, wouldn't give an inch, no matter what reasons you might have to justify an answer. We run towards people who are gracious. We run away from people who are ungracious. And the world has both kinds. And as a people, we also can project, as a church, either a gracious spirit or an ungracious spirit. We can be a church that people run to or a church that people will avoid. I read recently of one counselor who was talking to a prostitute who had many problems in her life, drug addiction, and all the things that might go with that kind of lifestyle. And she was talking about her problems to the counselor, and the counselor suggested, have you ever tried church, attending a good church? And she said, church, why would I want to go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'll just make me feel worse. Unfortunately, that is an opinion, not just of prostitutes, but probably many of your neighbors and many of the people in this community. Why I go to church should be criticized and told how bad I am. I already feel that way. We, as a church at Burleson Bible Church, have said that we want to be a grace-oriented church. We want to become a people of grace. A church that people will feel comfortable in. A church where people's needs will be met. We want to be a church that is giving and caring and loving and all the things that go along with being a grace-oriented church. To do that, I think we need to understand what grace is. Because grace is such an important word in the Christian's life. And it's not just a theological position as we often make it to be, but it is an experience to be lived out. We talk about being saved by grace, and that's true. But it goes way beyond the theology of salvation into the Christian life, into our sanctification, to living it out. We are told in the Bible, commanded in the Bible, in 2 Timothy 2.1, to be strong in grace. We're commanded in the Bible in 1 Peter 5.18 to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so it is imperative upon us as Christians, as God's people, to become people of grace. The wonderful thing about grace is that wherever it goes, it transforms lives. 
It's hard to respond to grace in a negative way, although it is possible. When people truly see the real thing, they respond with open hearts and open arms. We want to become graceful. That's a common word in the English language, but I want to spell it different. I want to spell it grace-full. Full of grace. People who understand what God has given us in His grace and people who live it out in our lives. When we are, when we are a graceful people, we will be at peace with God. And you know something? We'll be at peace with ourselves because grace affects so much of how we think about ourselves. And you'll be at grace, at peace with your neighbor, your brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are outside of the family of God as well. You'll be free to love them. You'll be free from fear, from doubt, from the experience of guilt that nags. Grace is a liberating experience. So we're going to talk about grace today, becoming a people of grace, and we want to focus today on the God of all grace, because after all, where does grace begin? Where do we get the idea of grace after all? If grace is the glorious theme of the Christian life, which I like to call it, where do we get the idea from? Well, everything in the Christian life starts with God. So we need to take a look at God, the God of all grace, the Bible calls him, and see what we can learn about the subject. A.W. Tozer, an author and theologian, said, The most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. Do you know the God of grace? When you think about God, do you think of him as a God of grace or a God of justice? God of love or a God of strict holiness? Tell me what you think about God. I'll tell you how you live your life and how you view yourself. I think A.W. Tozer's right. Now, first of all, let's talk about what are, what are we talking about anyway? What is grace? Let's give it a common definition because the word is used quite commonly outside of the church and theological circles as well. And the danger of talking about a definition is kind of like, you know, when you're preparing a nice meal, talking about your shopping list at the grocery store. It kind of sounds kind of sterile until it's all put together. But we need to talk about definitions first. What is grace? We use it in the English language. We, we talk about saying grace before a meal. What we're really talking about is saying a few words of gratitude because the words are related in the English language. We're saying thank you for this gift of the meal. We say grace at meals. We talk about being graceful. It usually is used in the English language to mean a pleasing quality or some kindness or beauty. A person has grace and charm, we say, an attractive feature, or the goodwill of a person. According to his graces, he gave us this gift. So we begin to see that the word grace is always something good. It's, a, it's associated with kindness and beauty and charm. It is often associated with the gift. In fact, in the biblical uses, and we, when we run into the word in the New Testament, the word grace is the basis of the word gift. If the word, the word grace is pronounced charis, and the word gift is simply charisma, from which we get the word charismatic. So it, it, the New Testament looks at grace as a gift from God. Um, in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, we have an instructive verse that shows us what grace is and what grace cannot be. Grace is a free gift. It says, if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. You understand the distinction that this verse clearly makes between that which is a free gift and that which is works or earned, or by merit. 
what we learn from this verse is that grace is free and that grace cannot be earned or it ceases to be grace. It becomes a debt. The moment you compromise the absolute free gift of grace, it ceases to be exactly that. If I do you a favor, out of the goodness of my heart, it is a gift to you. If you pay me $10, it is no longer a gift. It has become an obligation to you and a debt. So grace, looking at it in the biblical uses, doesn't depend on what we do for God, but on what he does for us. It has to be an unconditional gift. Full acceptance, no conditions, no expectations or returns expected. You know, I got a phone call the other day in the mail. You got a few weeks ago, I think we got one of these cards that said you want a free trip at this resort, you know, a free weekend at this resort, you know. And so I threw it in the trash because I've looked into this before. So have you, right? But then I get the phone call the other day, you know, and the guy says, hey, I just want to talk to you about the card, you know, that you won this free weekend at a resort. And I said, okay, I know what this is. I'm sorry. I don't have the time. And I politely got off of the phone. But you know what it is. The free weekend resort means that you agree to sit through a bunch of sales seminars, basically what it is. So it's not really free, is it? Because they won't let you come if you don't agree to sit through the seminar. So there is an obligation. There is some merit to that. It's not absolutely free. And it's not grace. There's something to be earned. So what is grace? It's an unmerited free gift. It is an undeserved favor. Something given out, period. With no expectation or obligation attached to it, no strings attached, we say. But where does grace come from, then? If both biblical and non-biblical uses understand grace that way, how do we understand it as Christians? Well, let's start with a verse in 1 Peter 5.10. And Peter, writing to Christians who are suffering, says, But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Peter is writing to people who are under severe trials and persecutions, and he wants to remind them that there is a God who will perfect or mature them, establish and strengthen them and settle them. And how does he assure them of that? He says, he reminds them that he is a God of all grace. God is a God of all grace. We often talk about God as a God of love. God is love. But here the Bible says he is also the God of all grace. Grace is inherent in his character and in his person, in his nature. Grace is a personal attribute of God. It's not a force like electricity. It is personal. It is wrapped up in God and who he is and what he is free to do and not do. Another Old Testament passage. A lot of times people think that grace isn't taught in the Old Testament, and yet it clearly is. It comes from Exodus chapter 34. Now, Exodus chapter 34 is a passage where Moses had gone up. You remember the story. He had gotten the Ten Commandments. He came down and he saw the people worshiping the golden calf. And so he threw down and broke the first set of commandments. He went back up for a carbon copy. God made him another copy, graciously, we might add. And that's what's happening here when he says to Moses, giving him the second copy, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The word used in the Old Testament for grace 
has the idea of to stoop in kindness to someone. Someone of, of a superior standing, stooping to help someone who is an inferior or in great need. And so it's a picture of someone stooping to meet that person. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a well-known preacher, used to say that love that reaches up is worship. Love that reaches out is affection. Love that stoops is grace. Grace always bends down to help somebody as a free gift. What God is doing here for Moses is giving him a second chance at the commandments. He's giving the people of Israel a second chance at commandments. If I was God, perish the thought, and Moses came back up and said, well, I threw the first set down and broke them all to pieces, I would have either been terribly angry with the people or terribly angry with Moses. But God was merciful and gracious, long-suffering, patient, that is, abounding in goodness and truth. He gives them a second chance. He forgives people. He breaks the cycles of sin that are perpetuated between the generations. God reaches into a family and breaks that cycle by his grace and by his power so that you're born of an alcoholic. You don't have to be an alcoholic. I have a friend who I grew up with him. He found out in his early years that he was adopted, and then he found out years after that, in his teenage years, that he was adopted as the son of a prostitute, born to a prostitute. And that tainted the rest of his life as he plunged into drugs and alcohol and every other immorality. And, call, and then he called me uh, some years ago, much later in life, still addicted to his drink and drugs, and said, well, that's all I can do. What do you expect from the son of a prostitute? As if I'm predestined to be only this. But this is the verse that I used with him right here. No, God is a forgiving God. He keeps mercy uh, to thousands, and he forgives iniquity and transgressions. He breaks that sin that ties up the generations in their behavior and in their habits. God's grace breaks the cycles of sin. There's a lot of grace in the Old Testament. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God looked on Moses with grace as he interceded for the people, the Bible tells us. God dealt with the nation of Israel by his grace. Here was a nation that never deserved God's blessing, and God yet chose them. Why? Because they were good? No. He chose them because he wanted to choose them and be good to them. And then when they were bad to him, he still blessed them, and he still promises to bless them today, although Israel is still in rebellion, and if I were God, I would have swept them into the sea a long time ago. But God says no. In 11.26, Romans 11.26, he says, someday Israel's going to be saved. Someday, Zechariah 12.10, they're going to recognize their Messiah when he returns. That's the grace of God dealing with Israel. Israel is given to us as an example to show us God's grace throughout the Old Testament. So where does grace come from? It comes from God, the God of all grace, who dealt with his people throughout all of history, by grace, from the very first time he covered Adam and, Eve's, Adam and Eve's sin with the animal skin, to today how he deals with you and I. The God of all grace has shown us the free gift of unmerited favor to we who are undeserving sinners. See, now we take on a more theological definition for grace. Grace is God's undeserved free gift given to undeserving sinners like you and me. And if it is a free gift, that means that there's nothing we do to earn it. 
But if it is a free gift, it also means that God doesn't have to give it. You never have to give a gift. You're never obligated to give a gift, or else it's not a gift. But think about that. If God gives grace to us, then he is free not to as well. He can withhold his grace from us. He could have been done a long time ago. He could have been done with Israel. He could have been done with the human race at the first sin. He could have been done with you and I. We never would have had a chance to appear. Or maybe our first sin. But God is the God of all grace. There's a story that takes place in France some time ago about a priest named Father Pierre. Father Pierre was found guilty of murdering a poor widow woman. Not poor widow woman, but she had some money. She had actually willed the money to Father Pierre. And she was found murdered and bloody. And the whole nation of France was outraged, the story goes, because of what this priest had done, especially since she had willed in her will to leave him her possession. But they found his bloody robes. The gardener named um, uh, Gruskalu found his garment bloody, hidden in the garden, buried. And so Father Pierre was sent away to a place called Devil's Island where people treated him terribly because of what he had done and mocked him and cursed him when he knelt for his daily prayers. He was transferred to another camp which closed and then when it closed, he requested to be sent to an island called the Isle St. Louis where there was a leper colony so that he could at least spend the rest of his life ministering to people with leprosy. Such a terrible place that the people who brought them food, wouldn't even leave the boats. They would just pull up along shore and just throw the food on shore. But here, Father Pierre worked and served these leprous people. He had been on that island for 20 years, and one day, a stranger arrived as a prisoner. And as he had done with the others, Father Pierre went up to him and knelt down to him and looked at his badly disfigured face from leprosy and asked him, friend, what can I do for you? And this man looked up at Father Pierre and said, I am... Gruskalu, and I am the one who did it. And the others who were standing around began to say, did what? Did what? What did you do? And he said, I am the one who murdered the old woman. I took Father Pierre's robes in the middle of the night so that she would rec- think that she recognized me and let me in. I was only going to rob her, but when she saw who I was, I had to murder her, and I buried the robes, and I turned him in. And then the first thing that Gruskalu did was he ran to confession the next day and confessed to Father Pierre. And for 20 years, Father Pierre kept the secret inside. Didn't tell anybody. And served the sentence that this man deserved. That is what grace is. It is giving something that is undeserved to those who are undeserving. And that's what God has done for you and for me. In everything but in our salvation, he gives to us the gift of eternal life that you and I do not deserve. And he punished one and sentenced one to death who did not deserve it, but died on our behalf. So how do we know this grace better? In other words, how is grace revealed to us? Grace is revealed to us. Theologians break it down as they break everything down into two categories. We talk about common grace, first of all. And common grace is something that is available to everyone. 
Common grace is the sunshine that we all experience, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. It's the food, it's the job, it's your health, it's your family, your clothes. The rain that came down rained on believers and unbelievers alike yesterday in Burleson. That's common grace. God has just given to his creation because of who he is. Look at the verse in Matthew that speaks of common grace. Matthew 5.45, he makes, God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Isn't that true? In fact, I think some unbelievers' gardens got watered better than mine did yesterday. Because I was in Burleson and it was just pouring. And I said, follow me home, follow me home. And I, by the time I got home, it wasn't a drop of rain coming down there. And then we just got a little. And look what, look what it says in Acts 17, 25, talking about God. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. The fact that you and I breathe is common grace. The fact that the unbeliever breathes is common grace. I visited on vacation in Maryland with an old friend that used to be in my youth group. She struggles for breath. That's her daily thing. She struggles for breath, has to go through hours of treatment. One, once she had said to me, she said, is it too much to ask God to breathe? Well, when you think about it, if breath is a gift, well, then we need to be grateful even for the breath that we breathe. And if you met this young lady, you would be grateful for the ability to breathe as well. Common grace is what God bestows on all people. It makes Mozart a brilliant musician, although Mozart was a profligate given to immorality. Common grace is what allows someone to get richer than you who may not believe in Jesus. It's just the ability and the gift that God has given us of health and talent. Sunshine. The purpose of common grace, though, is to show us the goodness of God. To help us to understand something about the God of all grace so that we can come to know him in a special way. And then theologians talk about not just common grace, they talk about special grace. Now special grace comes to us only through the person of Jesus Christ. Now this is when we turn to John chapter 1 and look there in a little more detail. Special grace is God's special revelation to us through his word that came to us specially, which tells us about Jesus Christ, his son. And this grace is not experienced by those who do not know Christ. But I want to look at John chapter 1 and a very good passage that I think just uh, exalts the concept of grace. Beginning in verse 14. And the word, speaking of Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, now look, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. John said, just predicted that this Christ who would come would be greater than him. And then verse 16 says, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace, or grace upon grace. Or I think the NIV says, one blessing after another. But literally, it's grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Let's talk about these verses here. First of all, notice that the word grace is used four times in this passage. It's a passage that exalts grace, but it does it in the presence of Christ because that's the first observation I want to make. Grace is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. In the Bible, grace is always associated with Jesus Christ. 
as a source of our, our blessing. It is coupled with Jesus Christ. It goes with him. You can't experience special God's special grace apart from Jesus Christ and the blessings that he brings. It says in verse 14, he's full of grace. It says in verse 16, that through him we receive grace after grace. So Jesus now, the God of all grace, reveals himself through Jesus Christ, who is the source of all grace. That's why Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, in him we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing, which we have no right to, no part of, except through Jesus Christ. And then we can experience grace fully revealed in him. Second observation from the passage I want to make is grace is inexhaustible. And I get that from verse 16 because it talks about grace upon grace. Or grace for grace, verse 16, one blessing after another. When you see repetition in the Bible, assume, assume reasonably and almost always that... It is a matter of emphasis. Holy, holy, holy. It's a matter of emphasis. Woe, woe, woe to the earth. Revelation. It's an emphasis. When the Bible talks about grace upon grace, literally, or grace for grace, or one blessing after another, there is an emphasis there on the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. It is inexhaustible. I like the language that's used, even though it seems somewhat difficult for us or obscure. I just love the language, but grace upon grace it just, it, it just maintains the purity of the word itself to emphasize the inexhaustible supply of it. If, if you compare it to the saying that we say wave after wave of something, like when you go to the beach and the wave washes on the shore, and, you, and, and then you look out and one washes on the shore, you can count on another one, and you can count on another one. In fact, you can stay there 24-7, and there's going to be wave after wave after wave. They're inexhaustible. They never cease. And the easiest way to say that is wave upon wave. Easiest way to talk about God's grace coming through Jesus Christ is grace upon grace. There's one blessing after another. It starts with the blessing of salvation. It goes from there. And this is the important part that we need to understand in becoming a people of grace. It goes from there to one experience of grace, one transforming experience of grace after another in our lives. As we live out the grace that we know in salvation. And his grace is inexhaustible. There's a big enough supply for anything. Paul taught in Romans that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. You can't out God's grace. Paul, when he was experiencing problems, says, well, I've asked the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh, he says, but his grace is sufficient for me. There's enough grace for every sin. There's enough grace for every problem in your life if you come to grasp what it is and how to appropriate it. It's inexhaustible. The third observation from John chapter 1 is that grace replaces law. We'll talk about more, more about this in the future, but just notice that it contrasts Moses with Jesus Christ in verse 17. Moses brought the law, but through Jesus comes grace and truth. Not that there wasn't grace under the law, there was, but there certainly is a different emphasis. The law said, do this and you'll be blessed. Grace says, do this because you're blessed. The law says do, grace says done. There's a big difference in emphasis. So grace replaces law. And that has important ramifications for the Christian. That's why we don't eat pork. That's why we don't meet on Saturday on the Sabbath. That's why we don't sacrifice animals here. Because grace of Jesus Christ has done away with that part of the law. 
another observation in verse 17 is that grace is closely linked with the truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It is so easy to pervert the doctrine of grace into something that is untruth. You have grace standing firmly in the middle. A beautiful concept of God, but people can use that and turn it into license in one extreme. Well, I'm saved by grace. I can do anything I want. Or people could turn that into legalism on the other extreme. I've got to do certain things in order to stay saved or in order to be acceptable to God. It is so easy to get away from the truth that comes along with grace. But we want to examine that truth in the weeks ahead. 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more you know about him, the more you'll know and understand grace in its proper perspective. And then the fifth observation is in verse 18. Grace is understood fully only in Christ. You see that word there in verse 18, the very end where it says, He has declared him. Jesus has declared the Father. We can only fully understand the God of all grace through Jesus Christ who came to declare him. Now that word declare is the word from which we get an English word called exegesis, which you probably never use in your everyday language. Thank the Lord for that, by the way. But when you go to seminary, you do exegesis and you do exegetical papers. That means you start with the Greek language and you have to explain every word and every phrase and every verb tense and do your parsings and all this stuff is called exegesis. What it means is that you're explaining the passage. What the verse literally says is that Jesus has come to explain God to us. That means that the only way to know fully the God of all grace is to know Jesus fully. Because his purpose in coming to us was to explain God to us. What is it that some people use to define grace? They say that it is grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's not really a definition. It's a good description, I think. It does capture one good point, that it, it takes God's riches, and co they come to us through Jesus Christ and at his expense. When Jesus was here, he taught us grace. He taught us to love our enemies. He taught us to forgive in an infinite number of times. He gave us parables that demonstrated grace, like the parable of the prodigal son, really the parable of the gracious and forgiving father. He demonstrated it in his actions when he forgave the adulterous woman, the prostitute, when he healed the sick and fed the hungry and provided for the poor and raised the dead. And everything that Jesus taught and everything that he did, he explained to us what it means to, that God was a God of all grace. But if Jesus hadn't come and do those things, we'd be very limited in our understanding of grace, I submit to you. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God's grace looks like? Look at Jesus. That only leaves us with the question, how should we respond to grace? Which is the question of the next few months and the next few Sunday mornings. And I want to encourage you to join us for the Sunday mornings as we go through and talk about how then do we respond to grace because it can be the most transforming concept you will ever confront in your life. I guarantee that. It will change you in your relationship to God. It will change you in your relationship to yourself. It will change you in your relationship to the people around you. But that leaves us with the question, how should we respond to grace? Just in general, let me give you a few things. First of all, how can you respond to grace with anything but gratitude? What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 9.15? He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The word gratitude comes from the word grace. It's a, thanks is a response to grace. 
When we understand what God has done for us, how can we do anything but thank Him? How can we sit down at a meal and realize that God has given us the job, He's given us the house, He's given us the stove to cook it on, He's given us the food to cook, He's given us the health to eat it. How can we do anything but pause and thank God for that meal, for our home, for our clothes, for our families, friends? How can we respond to grace? You know what Moses did? When God revealed himself as a gracious God, gave him the second set of commandments. Here's what Moses did. I didn't show you this part. Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Can you have any other response to a God who gives to those who don't deserve it but to worship him? A third response would be, in general, just to let his grace transform us, to discover more about it, to experience the freedom that it offers so that we can begin to live it out in our lives and be free, free from insecurity and guilt, from rejection, from legalism, from people-pleasing, from a judgmental and critical spirit, to experience God's joy and security and love to grow into maturity, all led by his grace. Grace teaches us to live godly lives, the book of Titus tells us. Grace charms us into changing. It is amazing grace. It's transforming grace. It's wonderful grace. Grace is the glorious theme of Christianity. Without grace, Christianity would be nothing. It is the theological foundation. It's the heart of our gospel. It is what makes Christianity distinct and unique among all the world's religions. Do you realize that the world can do most of the things that we do as Christians better than we can do it? The world can build houses. The world can build hospitals. The world can heal the sick. The world can feed the hungry. There's one thing the world cannot do that only you and I can do, and that's to offer grace. as expressed through Jesus Christ. They can't do that. We can do it. And we can do it more so as we become a people of grace. So we need to get to know Jesus as a person. He's the channel of God's grace. You need to understand how much he, he loves you. And let him change your life. We're going to be talking about how much he's given to us. And that will change your life. You know, sociologists and psychologists say, that you will become what the most important in person in your life thinks you are. You will become what the most important person in your life thinks you are. Your father, your mother, or maybe now as Christians, your heavenly father. How does he think about you? He loves you, you know that. How much does he love you? How much have you incorporated that into who you are? Think about John the Apostle who wrote the book of John. You know what he's called in that book quite often? The one that Jesus loved. The one that Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself. He doesn't refer to himself as fisherman or former fisherman or apostle or disciple or follower of Jesus or author of the Bible. He refers to himself as the one who Jesus loved because that to him was the most important definition of himself. The most important concept of himself. The most important thing in his identity was that he was the one that Jesus loved. Well, friends, you are the one that Jesus loves. You are the one that Jesus loves. He can't love you any more than he, he loves you. You can't do anything to make him love you more than he loves you, and you can't do anything to make him love you less. 
Jesus loves you immensely. He's given everything for you. You are the one that Jesus loves. You are the one who he has given, to whom he has given his grace. When we begin to think of ourselves like that, our lives will be transformed and changed. You'll no longer be a plumber or a professor or a homemaker or a teacher. You'll be the one that Jesus loves. And that will define your life. And that's our goal as we become a people of grace. And all of that starts with understanding the great debt that we have as sinners towards God. We have broken his law and turned our backs on him who loves us so much. And yet God, out of his grace and free will, pursued us and died for us when we were so nasty to him. Gave his only son the greatest gift he could. And Jesus, who is now alive, risen from the dead, offers you the gift of eternal life. And that relationship with God, the God of all grace, if you come to him and ask him for that gift. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the blessings we have in Jesus Christ, that we can know the God of all grace. It's my prayer today, today this morning, that there not be a person here who lives in the darkness of doubt or fear or guilt or condemnation, of self-criticism or judgment by others, or under the impression that you are, uh, you are done with them. If they're here this morning, Lord, the opposite is true. You're just starting with them. And I pray if there is one here who needs you as Savior, that they would make that decision, that they would indicate it on the white card that we can get, so I can get back with them later. Father, I just pray for the rest of us, know you as Savior, that we might come to understand in a healthy way what it is your grace has done for us and how we can respond in a grateful way. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.